Welcome to the CSIS Cogite Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we discuss power and conflict in Southeast Asia with Michael Vatikiotis. The Southeast Asian region's move towards prosperity and growth in recent years, while promising, has been far from an unchecked march towards utopia. As any follower of ASEAN knows, while interstate conflict has been minimal in recent times, there are still many political and economic hurdles within both mainland and maritime Southeast Asia states. Key individual countries around the region face challenges in the form of unresolved insurgencies, simmering ethnic conflicts, and illiberal or ineffective governance. To take the pulse of these trends, we are joined by Michael Vatikiotis, Asia Regional Director of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and a leading authority on governance and conflict resolution in Southeast Asia. Michael is also the author of the new book titled Blood and Silk, which analyzes power and conflict in modern Southeast Asia based on his personal experience as a conflict mediator and journalist. My colleague and CSIS Kajit Asia editor Jeff Bean sat down with Michael last week. Here's their conversation. Joined today by uh, Michael Vatikiotis, uh, recording for a podcast discussion on his new book, as well as contemporary uh, developments in Southeast Asia. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Could you give us uh, just your uh, brief uh, background, what kind of work you do? So uh, I was a journalist for 20 years, and about 13 years ago, I um, left journalism and joined a uh, small international NGO by the name of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue based in Switzerland. It's now become a rather sizable organization. We're a global organization. We do mediation and armed conflict, and um, we are essentially uh, private facilitators of uh, parties to armed conflict, uh, also political conflict. Uh, We work globally in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And I run the Asia operation based in Singapore, and um, we work in all the major conflicts in Asia. So as you know, the situation on Mindanao in Marawi City in the Philippines is the latest unresolved insurgency in Southeast Asia to reignite. Could you give a short overview of the basics of this conflict for listeners who may not be as familiar with the situation in the southern Philippines? Who are the players? What is happening? Uh, What happened to the BBL or the Bangsamoro Basic Law, which was potentially going to solidify the peace that had developed during the extended ceasefire between the government and the MILF. Uh, where do we stand? Um, Marawi is a sizable uh, city in the Muslim part of Mindanao that um, essentially was taken over by a group of anywhere between 100 or 200 uh, armed men, very well prepared tactics, and uh, the entire population of the city has been evacuated. It's about 200,000 people. It's a very serious uh, new development in what is a very well-established uh, landscape of conflict in Mindanao. Um, Mindanao has been a landscape of conflict since the mid-1960s. The armed conflict involving the Muslim Moros against the government of the Philippines has cost the lives of about 150,000 people, displaced more than a million. Um, So it is a very old, established landscape of conflict that, as you correctly pointed out, was um, uh, for the last two decades very much under control through a well-established ceasefire mechanism. And over the last two decades, there has been perpetual negotiation to reach agreement uh, with the main Moro groups, the Moro National Liberation Front first, which was, uh, they reached an agreement with the government in 1996, followed by an agreement with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front in, in 2015. 
The major problem in all this is that these agreements have never been fully implemented. And in the specific problem that led to Marawi is that the agreement that was signed in 2015 that was to be followed up with um, and by a, the framing of a law, a basic law to implement the agreement, has been continually interrupted either by events on the ground, um, the Mamasapano incident in 2016, January, um, in which 44 police commandos were killed in an anti-terrorist raid, the change of government. And, you know, as we've seen in the past, the expected challenges that the autonomy, the basic form of autonomy that this agreement allows for uh, would meet both in the Congress and in the Supreme Court. The law has now been finally framed. Um, it is with the president's office, and the timetable for implementing the Bangsamora Basic Law is the, towards the end of 2018. That's a very long time. And meanwhile, the problem that arose in Marawi stems very much from the failure to implement the peace agreement, which has led to the loss of legitimacy by the leaders of the MILF, who can no longer provide for their, for their followers. Um, you know, they're supposed to be a peace dividend. Autonomy would lead to sort of degree of political enfranchisement, you know, economic development. None of this has happened. Um, and as a result, splinter groups have emerged. And some of these splinter groups have discovered that the uh, radical ideology of IS is a kind of a draw. You know, it's not that they necessarily buy into it, but it's a draw. It's a draw for young people with little to do. They need sort of uh, to be inspired to join these armed groups. The armed groups themselves are still very much driven by profit motive. But increasingly, they have been drawn into this militant orbit. It sells well. It, it goes down well. They can even sell some of their activities online to ISIS. You know, it's, it's a sort of a franchise arrangement. But I'm still reluctant to say that this means that they've necessarily bought into the caliphate. I think it's a, a very much a, a flag of convenience. Nonetheless, it's a very dangerous one because it's attracted foreign fighters as well. And you mentioned foreign fighters as well as potentially some Southeast Asian veterans of conflicts in the Middle East and, and Central Asia, uh, maybe returning to Southeast Asia and, and traveling back to the region. Can you share some of your concerns related to uh, Islamic extremism and violent extremism in Southeast Asia? How can governments, uh, NGOs, and religious leaders potentially work to prevent or dampen uh, radicalization? Well, you know, in my book, I, I, I dwell on this at length in a, in a chapter on a religious conflict. And I think there are three elements that are kind of interlocking here. You know, one has been the steady increase in levels of piety in the Islamic community around the region, which is in, in step with global developments and largely driven by Saudi money. Um, I think it's very, very hard to underestimate the influence of Saudi Arabia in, in, in driving this, 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 this religious conservatism under, under you know, under, uh, underwritten by the kind of Wahhabi Salafist influence. This has been a very successful campaign. And I point out in my book that in many ways, the origins of this in the 1980s were that the very first stirrings of Islamic activism in Southeast Asia in the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, were as a result of the Iranian Revolution. And, you know, the very, I remember and I recall covering, you know, um, militant students agitating for more freedom on campus, essentially took as their operation, you know, the Ayatollah and the in the Iranian Revolution, this must have sent shivers down the spine of the Saudi Kingdom, who realized that they had to sort of get with, you know, match this program um, with one of their own. And that's when you started to see the Wahhabi money coming in, very successfully built mosque building programs. I'm talking mainly about Indonesia here, but also other 
parts of Southeast Asia. So that's one factor. The other factor, of course, was that um, there is a strong uh, undercurrent of Islamic militancy in many countries like Indonesia, which derive from older grievances. Uh, they could be irredentist grievances. Uh, there is, of course, uh, there was always a challenge at the beginning of the Republic in Indonesia from the Islamic community wanting more, you know, the Islamic State to be established in Indonesia. And when 9-11 happened in 2001, these uh, lingering elements uh, with grievances going back to the, to the beginning of uh, the, the post-colonial period very quickly, quickly latched on to the sort of the model of extremism. And then thirdly, I think democracy has had a role to play in, if you like, liberating um, some of these forces. You know, if you're a political party in Indonesia in this sort of more democratic context, what you want to do is appeal to the lowest common denominator. And political parties themselves are not well organized, developed, institutionally quite crude, and, and, and they're just going to go for what sells, and, and Islam sells. Uh, and so you have a combination of all those factors that has generated this conservative impulse in society with the sort of manifestation of militancy and radicalism on the fringes. Turning to your book, one of the other trends uh, that you identify, I believe, is the sort of reemergence of authoritarianism in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, either in, in fact in places where military coup has happened, such as in Thailand recently, uh, or in style, uh, the democratically elected leader of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, has pursued a very aggressive counter-criminal campaign. In other places, of course, uh, authoritarianism has never really left Cambodia Laos. Are each of these governing situations sort of separate cases, or are there larger factors affecting all of Southeast Asia uh, contributing to this, this trend or this shift? Well, I, I suppose one should begin by saying that no one in Southeast Asia um, had high expectations for liberal democracy. But I think there were expectations for the progressive development of popular sovereignty and delivering governments, delivering goods to people, uh, making sure that their welfare is looked after, you know, taking care of justice and equality. And this is this is what has lagged behind in, in a general sense. Um, you know, the worst possible courts in, in, in Southeast Asia are probably in Indonesia, which is the, the country which has the most prog progressive democratic uh, government. You know, the, the, the fact is that we're looking across the region, you're looking at a state of semi or demi-democracy, as I call it. Um, you know, there are imperfections everywhere. But I think what's very important to look at is that, you know, the kinds of leadership that you see emerging today are, as I mentioned earlier, you know, harking back to the sort of rather traditional models of leadership. And it's a theme that I've, I've been looking at for some years now. And also, uh, appealing to the sort of lowest common denominator because, you know, populism uh, works uh, to some extent, as we see globally. And and so we've seen some of these democracies that could have developed better institutionally become hostage to the sort of style of leadership that, um, you know, uh, plays on the the ability to, to appeal to the lowest common denominator factors in society. And so these are problematic uh, in a general sense. Now, if we look at the across the region, um, you know, obviously Thailand has moved backwards um, from being a sort of semi-liberal democracy in the 1990s to being essentially, you know, under military rule since 2014. In Cambodia, as you point out, th there's a sort of degree of election integrity, but you have uh, a leader who essentially considers himself to be the embodiment of the country. M Myanmar is an interesting case in point. It's a, it's a relatively recent transition, but it's also one that is that has now uh, uh, encountered obstacles um, in terms of freedom of expression for the media, in terms of the openness of 
of government and the the degree of to which Aung San Suu Kyi's leadership is is um, is, is 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 open to uh, questioning um, and is and is and is transparent. It's a rather authoritarian style of leadership. Um, you know, similarly, where we where we where we have more democratic progress in in the Philippines, you know, since the mid 1980s, and Indonesia since the late 1990s, a lot of the times these sort of formative democracies are hostage to the style of leadership. You know, you went in the Philippines from Aquino, who was a kind of open-minded, sort of liberal kind of guy, who ran a very sort of business-friendly, rather mild uh, administration to Rodrigo Duterte, who essentially came in and, and, and warned people from the beginning, I'm going to be a strongman. Uh, and that's exactly what he's done. Indonesia, I think it's a sad case of, of, of very weak leadership. Um, you know, Indonesians elected a very fine symbol of, of transparent government, but in, in, Indonesia is a very complex place. And uh, Jokowi has not proved to be very effective in sort of managing the different forces. Um, and I think that's, that's led to a backsliding of freedoms and concerns in society about pluralism. You mentioned uh, Myanmar or Burma. As you said, we've seen a move toward a nascent democracy. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, was elected. Uh, they've been in office now uh, for over a year. On the fringes, I guess, or the on the periphery within Myanmar, there have been long-standing armed conflicts that people often forget about. In addition to that, so those are uh, typically along ethnic or sectarian lines. We've also seen uh, a slight uh, reemergence of religious violence from the majority Buddhist population against minority um, Muslims. For Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD, does their administration have the institutions or the bandwidth to resolve these flashpoints involving uh, Rakhine State, the Rohingya, Shan State, the Kachin uh, Independent Army? You have these sort of series of conflicts that are swirling around. What's your assessment? Well, the problem and the challenge for Myanmar, I think, even you know, irrespective of which government is in power, is the, the failure in the modern period to essentially come up with a, a commonly accepted vision of what the nation should be. Um, you know, they're still stuck, I think, in this rather colonially confected concept of, of a, a, a sum of many parts, 135 different ethnic groups. And, you know, we really have to go to some of these areas to appreciate just how separate they consider themselves from the rest of the country. I mean, there's a, a Mongla is a, is a state, um, a special region, as they call it, run by a kind of semi-Chinese ethnic group. Um, who run their own services? They have, you know, they have their own government. Um, they have their own standing army. Um, they consider themselves to be essentially a unit, you know, within but also without the, the, the nation. And that goes for many of the other groups as well. The Kachin, uh, in, in you know, close to the Chinese border, you know, they they consider themselves their own state. And what they're looking for is a kind of federal setup. But no one's really properly defined in a macro sense. What do we mean by federalism? What does this actually mean? You know, a group of the ethnic armed groups recently went to Canada and were surprised to find that Quebec doesn't have its own standing army or constitution. You know, this is how they consider federalism to be. Um, so there's a lack of understanding, and, and this hasn't really been a proper discussion about the vision for the country, which I think is a major, it's not, you can't really just pin that on the government itself. I think it's a major collective failing. They're kind of afraid to have that discussion. You know, it's the, it's the standard instinct of centralized governments that, or, 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 or states that they're afraid to talk about, you know, a different arrangement in case it would, the, the whole thing flies apart. And so there is this strong unitary impulse in, in, in Burma, Myanmar. Having said that, 
the previous government made a lot of progress towards building trust um, because they simply sat down and negotiated with these people with a kind of a more open approach of, you know, okay, let's see what we can do. Under this government, despite the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi has made resolving the ethnic conflict the, the key pillar of her government, her rather sort of haughty, uh, almost arrogant approach, the, the, the difference, the, the worry that she has of upsetting the army has made this a very difficult discussion. And in fact, the levels of trust have deteriorated uh, in the last two years rather than being built. And, uh, and that's a concern. And now that you have China playing a, an increasing role in sort of, if you like, trying to mediate between the ethnic armed groups along its border and the government, um, it becomes um, a, a, a rather tricky process. There has been some success. Um, you know, there, there have been several, there have been two major meetings, but they have been, you know, as they say, you can't uh, force draw, you know, the, 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 the horse to water. Um, you know, there's been an element of, of compulsion in, in bringing people together for these meetings, and not very much has been agreed. So you have a major problem. Now, on, uh, with the ethnic armed groups who continue, uh, the, the, the levels of violence have increased, uh, armed conflict is still there, um, you know, nothing has really improved. With Rakhine State in the in the West, it's a rather different situation. You have 1.3 million stateless people, the Rohingya, who insist that they are part of the country uh, and and have a right to live in the country. But the hosts uh, in their communities, the Rakhine community, uh, the people they live next door alongside, um, insist that they're not. Um, citizens of Myanmar, and you have a very arcane citizenship law that prevents them from becoming citizens, and they're not one of the 135 official ethnic groups. And this is hugely problematic because, as we've seen, people have picked up and left in large numbers. Uh, there are huge numbers of them in Bangladesh, uh, in camps. And more recently, you've had the establishment of an armed insurgency You know that threatens to actually destabilize the border even more. The communal situation is very tense. Uh, and, and, and to give you an idea of how difficult it is, the government sort of senses the need to improve the policy and maybe provide some documents for these people. And every time it tries to do so, the local Rakhine community opposes this, often violently. So it's very, very hard for the government to actually do the right thing. And this is problematic and remains so, and it's probably the biggest, you know, for many of the governments outside of Myanmar that want to help the country, um, the biggest problem they face is that they're getting asked questions. You know, well, why are you supporting a government that kills Muslims? You know, why why are you you know persecutes these people? Um, so it's it's a very problematic issue for for Aung San Suu Kyi's government. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Look forward uh, to reading your new book, and uh, thanks for joining us. To see more of Michael's analysis and commentary on Southeast Asia, visit his blog at www.mvatikiotis.com and follow him on Twitter at jago writer. You can find details about his new book, Blood and Silk, in the show notes for this podcast. As governments in Southeast Asia attempt to resolve the differences in their polities, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to Michael Vaticiotis for sharing his experiences and analysis with us. The audio for this podcast was edited by Bryce Thompson. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and CogitAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis on Maritime Asia, now in five languages, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.